0: It is once again my great joy to come before you and exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, to reflect upon His excellency and His majesty. And I pray that my discourse this morning will once again affirm the lordship of Christ in your life and encourage you to allow Him to sit on the throne of your heart, which is His rightful place. The title of my discourse this morning is, Because He Lives... And I would encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In a few minutes, we will be looking primarily at verse 58. But before we go there, may I capture your attention for a moment? As Christians, we live in a perpetual state of amazement concerning our sin and God's sovereign saving grace on our behalf. We marvel at the divine condescension. When God became man, we are amazed when we think about how he lived and died to reconcile sinners to himself. As Christians, we shake our heads and wonder at the incarnation. We marvel at the babe in the manger. And our mouths are silent when we behold the spectacle of His earthly ministry. And likewise, our our, our eyes are filled with tears when we gaze upon the Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then we are absolutely driven to our knees in agony as we watch Him hanging upon the tree. And our hearts are grief-stricken as we behold His body being prepared, when the spices are administered and He is wrapped in the linens of death. But ah, dear friends, when we approach the tomb and we see that the stone has been rolled away, and we look inside and see that it's empty, our hearts are filled with joy, inexpressible joy. When we hear the angels say to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you were looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said, come see the place where he was lying. Oh, child of God, when we behold that empty sepulcher, our mourning turns to joy. The royal bedchamber is empty. There is no body there. The lover of our souls is not there. There is no corruption of flesh. There is no putrefaction, no rottenness of bones. Only the empty linen wrappers now lie upon the cold stone. A reminder, frankly, of what we will someday wear. But the Savior is not there. So we rejoice because we serve a Risen Savior, not a dead one. The debt of sin has been paid, validated by the empty tomb. And because He lives, so too shall we. This is Resurrection Sunday, and we celebrate, therefore, the most amazing event in in human history, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, it is great sport for those who do not belong to Him, to mock his resurrection, to mock the veracity of him being raised from the dead. And I will make no attempt to defend that today. There are many who have done so with such compelling evidence that only those who resent Christ and want to believe a lie could possibly argue against it. In fact, the New Testament records many appearances of Christ to numerous people subsequent to his bodily resurrection. So I will leave that alone this morning. I will be content to let the the skeptics and the heretics frolic in a fool's paradise and spend my time worshiping the one who conquered sin and Satan and death and who has saved me and all of you who know him as Savior from our sins. Now, it's important to understand that the topic of the resurrection is central to the gospel of Jesus Christ, yet it is seldom mentioned in our age of apostasy. Often you will hear something about the resurrection in a funeral service, and I was reflecting upon that reality as I was preparing my thoughts for you this morning. You know, funerals are very difficult occasions, and most in attendance are often stricken with grief, and they're confused. And many of them are, frankly, ignorant about the whereabouts of their loved one. And typically, the assumption, especially in our culture, is that everyone goes to heaven regardless of what they believe, regardless of the character of their life. And, of course, the preacher must never contradict that virtue, that that verdict, not virtue, that verdict, regardless of the evidence to the contrary. So it's okay to speak much of heaven, but none of hell. It's okay to speak much of a resurrection for everyone, but not of the just versus the unjust. But frankly, to acquiesce to the insanity of political and religious correctness is to deny Christ and be ashamed of the gospel. Certainly, there are many appropriate things that can be said at a funeral, but... There is only one message, my friends, that can give hope. Only one message. And that's the message of the Gospel. And inherent in that message is the resurrection of Christ. And because He lives, every person who has placed his or her faith in Christ will also live. They will also be resurrected from the dead and live eternally in the presence of God. And those who refuse to repent, who refuse to believe will also be resurrected from the dead and they will live eternally apart from the presence of God and the horrors of hell. The Bible is very clear there is a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked Acts 24:15 and many other passages. In fact scripture clearly teaches that a bodily resurrection is a precondition for divine judgment and there is no better place no more suitable occasion than a funeral to present the realities of both kinds of resurrection. What a glorious hope there is for those who believe and what tragic despair awaits those who don't. And I might also add that it would be a profound malfeasance of ministerial duty for a minister of the gospel to come to a funeral service and offer hope to those who are perishing in their sins apart from the hope that comes through repentance and the grace that can be found through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And frankly, to comfort a non-Christian by applying biblical texts addressed only for true believers is a a deadly blasphemy. It's a horrific thing to do. Likewise, calling oneself a Christian Yet denying the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ is as delusional as a convicted criminal on death row gloating over his eventual ascension to some royal throne. It's ridiculous. So on this resurrection morn, we will rejoice in the reality of the empty tomb. We will exalt the resurrection of our Savior in glory in the certain hope of our eventual bodily resurrection from the dead. But more specifically this morning, I would invite you to ask yourself a question. What impact does this doctrine bear upon your life? What difference does the resurrection of Christ have in the way you live your life? Now, if your answer is, well, you know, frankly, it really doesn't impact me one way or the other. um, You know, as I think about it, maybe it's a meaningless myth that a lot of Christians believe. Or others might say, well, I believe it's, you know, just a basic Christian doctrine. And it's based on an event that may or may not be true. I I don't know for sure, but frankly, it really has no bearing on my life. It it really doesn't impact my worldview. Um, it may have some impact on something later on, but I'm not real sure. Well, frankly, my friend, if that is you, then you believe a lie. And you might as well live it up. When you leave the church today, you might as well just go live it up like the rest of the world. In fact, I wouldn't encourage you to come back anymore, because the whole thing's kind of a myth to you. Seize the day would be your motto. Live for today. You might say, well, that's a curious admonition coming from a pastor. But my friends, it's got a precedent in Scripture because that's precisely what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32. He says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. He was quoting Isaiah 22:13, where the same philosophy of life characterized the ancient Israelites who disregarded the reality of a resurrection from the dead to face a holy God and judgment and believed instead that life was just one big opportunity to indulge the flesh, one big opportunity to fulfill all of the desires of the flesh and And all of the pleasures to be self-indulgent and to have no regard for God and His glory. No thought of what will someday come. Because if you don't believe in a coming judgment, there's no need for repentance. There's no need for godly living. So my message to you is simply, my friend, you need to repent and you need to believe the truth about your sin and the Savior. The Scripture says in Romans 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. But what about those of you who do believe? Those of you that know and love the Lord? What difference does the resurrection of Jesus Christ have in your life? How does it impact your thinking, your choices on a daily basis? What are the practical implications of this marvelous doctrine in your daily living. Is it merely a fascinating piece of theological knowledge with no real significance until someday you're resurrected? Just something that you kind of put on hold, something you look forward to, but really you don't think about it between now and then. Does it offer only hope for the future without any real practical value for your present life for your character and conduct in the here and now. Well, if that is your honest appraisal, I would say with all love that you are both ignorant as well as disobedient. Two most unfortunate problems for a Christian because they deprive us of joy and blessing. And they also... God of his rightful glory. And so it is this very issue that is the practical implications of the resurrection on the Christian life. It is this very issue that the Apostle Paul addresses as he concludes his very logical and thorough defense of the doctrine of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. And the verse that we'll focus upon is in verse 58, where he says, therefore, In light of all these resurrection truths, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Now, let me take a moment and give you the context of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Here, Paul deals with the subject of death. And the resurrection of Christ, as well as the resurrection of all of the dead, Christian and non-Christian, he argues that to deny the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the dead is literally to deny the gospel. Now, unlike the Pharisees, the Jewish Sadducees of that day opposed the notion of the resurrection of the dead. They ridiculed the idea of anything supernatural, including things like, like angels and spirits and so on. The Greeks, however, of that day believed in eternal life, but only as spirits, not in any bodily material form. So they also scoffed at the idea of a bodily resurrection. You might recall in Paul's sermon in Acts 17, in sermon to the Athenians, We read in verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. I'm used to sneering. I've had some of it even in this church. I've had some people get up and leave before I finish preaching. Others wish they had. And many cannot wait to hit the door when the final amen is said at the benediction. But many sneered in that day and continue to this day when they think of the resurrection of the dead. Well, then there were also heretics in the first century who believed in a resurrection, but they insisted that it had already taken place. In some mystical way, in a mystical experience, there had been in their minds a spiritual resurrection that had already occurred. And therefore, they denied a literal future bodily resurrection. You will recall what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 16. He says, But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them were Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth. Now, here's why saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and thus they upset the faith of some. Now, as a footnote, this is, my friends, the inevitable consequence of allegorizing Scripture, of spiritualizing Scripture, of renouncing the plain meaning of Scripture and its normal meaning, its normal language and saying, well, that's not really. I know that's what it says, but that's not really what it means. We see this in many places in the church today. We see it. And the heretical movement called hyper-preterism, where these people, preter by the way, Latin term for past, they believe that everything has happened in the past, therefore all of the prophetic literature, for example, has already occurred in 70 A.D. And the hyper-preterist would also um, allegorize all of the prophetic passages and they would argue that those prophetic Passages only describe spiritual, not literal realities. And for them, therefore, all of the resurrections from the dead have already taken place spiritually in 70 A.D. There's no hope of a future bodily bodily resurrection of the saints. For them, even Christ's second coming has already taken place spiritually in 70 A.D. That, by the way, was the time when Rome conquered Jerusalem. Friends, when you allegorize scripture, you can make it say anything you want it to say. And you would say, my, surely not many people believe this. Oh, no, it is gaining momentum. They are experiencing enormous success in proselytizing naive and undiscerning people in this heretical movement. We also see the same type of thing in what's often called uh, theological liberalism. You've heard the term higher criticism These are liberal quibblers, so-called scholars. You will typically see them on these TV documentaries where they're forever trying to discredit the truth of the gospel and who Christ was and so on. So anyway, Paul had to deal with these heresies concerning the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection from the dead. And what he was saying, in essence, in chapter 15 is that there's a great danger here if you deny the resurrection... If you insist that Christ has not risen, then we as apostles are nothing more than liars, false teachers, and the gospel is a big hoax. And Christians are to be pitied because they have been duped. Their faith is futile. In fact, we read in verses 13 through 19 of 1 Corinthians 15, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is vain. In verse 17, he says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. So, friends, when we summarize 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we can see that in essence, what the apostle is saying as the spirit of God speaks through him is that because he lives, we are saved from the eternal wrath of God due to the penalty of our sins. Verse one. In fact, Paul says that this is that he has been raised for our justification in Romans 425 because he lives back to 1 Corinthians 15 We must hold fast the word which has been preached to us in verse two for the joy of his resurrection is our hope. The truth of his resurrection is our joy. Verses 13 through 19, because he lives, those who are Christ's will be raised to eternal glory when Christ returns. He goes on to say, in fact, in verse 23, he speaks of three stages. We see this in other passages, by the way. Let me give them to you briefly. The first stage of resurrection will be those who were saved from Pentecost until the rapture of the church. And those will join the living saints as together they meet the Lord in the air. The second group will be the Old Testament saints and those saved during the tribulation. They will be resurrected to eternal life and enter into the millennial kingdom to rule and to reign with the living Christ. The third group will be believers who eventually die during the millennial reign of Christ. They will live long lives, we know, but they will eventually die and will be instantly transformed and receive a glorified eternal body. Now, some might say, well, what about all of the millions and billions of people who have never repented of their sins, who have never begged God for undeserved mercy, who have never placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who are not genuine Christian, when will their resurrection be? Well, that will happen at the end of the millennial kingdom, at the great white throne judgment, and they too will receive a resurrected body suited for eternal torment. And friends, the very thought of such horror should stir each of us to a renewed zeal for evangelism and unbounded praise for our own salvation that is so undeserved. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 15 and tells us that because he lives, verses 24 through 25, (coughs) that Christ will abolish all rule. He's going to permanently put all of his enemies, as well as our enemies, under his feet in eternal subjection and judgment. We know that he is going to reign with the Father, and the Holy Spirit in full Trinitarian glory. We read that in verses 27 through 28. Because He lives, Christ has conquered Satan and sin and our last enemy, which is death. Death is literally deprived of its stinger. Verse 26. For the last enemy that will be abolished is death. In verses 34 and I mean 35 through 49. Because He lives, we're we're going to receive a glorified body. And we see glimpses of this, by the way. And our Lord's glorified body, that magnificent body, His resurrected body that we have glimpses of in Scripture just before His ascension back into heaven. And might I add something here? This is not simply simply, um, being raised from the dead with the same body that we had, like Lazarus. It's not that type of a thing. You must understand that Christ was called the firstfruits, okay? And it's the idea here of He's going to be the first, the prototype of a new kind of body. This will be a body that we too will have that is not subject to disease and decay and death. It will be a body that is not subject to time and to space. So because He lives, we're going to receive a glorified body. In fact, in verse 53 and following, he says, indeed, this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Let me remind you here, the power of sin is the law. It means that it was the law that exposed our sin and declared us guilty before the divine bar of justice. But he goes on to say, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, all of this is because he lives. Now, if this does not cause your heart to rejoice, if it does not stir your spiritual affections and and give you a sense of just being completely immersed in the love of God. I, I don't know what would. I don't know what else to say. Because, dear friends, herein is the very fountain of our salvation. Herein is the joy of the elect of God. Here we read of the redeemed... And how we have been saved from the penalty of sin by the blood of the Lamb in whom we have forgiveness. Therefore, verse 58, he says, My beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. You see, Paul has labored throughout this chapter to make his case for the resurrection of Christ and those who are united to Him in faith. Therefore, Now, follow the flow here, because God became man, because he lived a sinless life, because he satisfied all of the demands of the law that we could not do, because he secured our pardon, because he took our sins upon himself and died on a cross in our place, because he removed the sting of death, because he conquered the grave, because his resurrection guarantees ours. Because death is swallowed up in victory that Christ has wrought for all who place their trust in Him. Because we have been given this unspeakable gift of grace, deserving of our utmost praise and worship. Therefore, everyone who truly believes these magnificent truths, everyone who finds the winds of these certain realities, lifting them like eagles above the lowlands of life, Everyone who thinks of these realities and when they do, they find their heart overflowing with joy and gratitude for all of those people. And I hope you're in that mix. These saints will be motivated to three categories of obedience described in verse 58. And here they are. Number one, you will be steadfast. Number two, you will be immovable. And number three, you will abound in the work of the Lord. Oh, dear friend. Do you believe that death has been swallowed up in victory? Do you believe that the tomb is empty? Do you believe that Christ has indeed risen and now sits at the right hand of the Father? If not, you are to be pitied. And if so, you must take to heart these three exhortations to godly living. And what a perfect time to do it on Resurrection Sunday. Let's look at these closely because he lives, because death is swallowed up in victory. Therefore, number one, my beloved brethren, be steadfast now, steadfast in the original language is quite simple. It comes from a word that means to be seated. Interestingly enough, it means literally to be settled or to be firm, to be unyielding, to be adamant, to be resolute. And here the context is the gospel especially the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of the dead. We are to be comfortably safe and secure in this belief. We are to be firm in our conviction. And I ask you, are you steadfast in your belief of the gospel? Or do you find yourself vacillating? Do you find yourself easily shaken? Sometimes doubting, sometimes questioning especially when you turn on the television and you see the documentaries and you realize that all that you believe is a big lie. Huh. Are you plagued by the maybes? Well, maybe there isn't a resurrection of the dead under judgment. Maybe, maybe, maybe everybody is just annihilated. Maybe people that don't love God just cease to exist, whoever they might be. Maybe, maybe death is all there is. So therefore, maybe we can just live it up. Maybe it doesn't really matter how I live. Maybe the gospel isn't true. Maybe it's not worth all the persecution and suffering of being a Christian. Maybe there's no hell. Well, that's an unpopular thing anyway. Maybe everyone goes to heaven because after all, God is love. You know, maybe God is not sovereign over salvation and After all, it's unfair for God to choose some and not all. Maybe the things that the Bible says really isn't true. Maybe Christ isn't coming again to reign and to put all of His enemies under His feet. Maybe the Bible doesn't really mean what it says. Maybe I can't know anything for certain. My friends, this is the opposite of being steadfast. This is being a waverer. This is being, as we would say in our vernacular, Wishy-washy, which will inevitably lead to compromise and cynicism. There is a popular movement in the world today, especially here in the United States. It's called the Emergent Church. Maybe you've heard of it. I've mentioned it briefly at times here in the pulpit. It is a blasphemous movement of avant-garde evangelicals bent on making Christianity appealing to our postmodern culture for them truth is unknowable assuming it even exists and it is the height of arrogance to assume that anyone could know truth therefore cynicism is a virtue for them they believe in embracing the mystery because after all nobody really knows what the Bible means keep your theology fluid they would say Keep it in a constant state of flux. Belief in sound doctrine or having strong convictions is considered arrogant, offensive, and hopelessly naive. For them, sermons are offensive. The preferred method of communication and worship is to get together and dialogue, because after all, everybody's opinion is equal. They believe in what's called the hermeneutics of humility. Which means when you come to approaching the scripture, you have to humble yourself and say, you know, I really have no idea what it means. Here's what I think it means, but you may be right. Maybe that is what it means. I don't know. I just want to be humble. Folks, that's ridiculous. That's nothing more than the proud rebellion of unbelief and hostility towards divine revelation. May I remind you that the Holy Spirit has been given, us, given to us to guide us unto all truth. John sixteen thirteen that the church is to be the pillar and the support of the truth. Paul told Timothy, may I remind you that we grow spiritually according to Ephesians 415 by speaking the truth in love to one another. May I remind you that Jesus prayed in His high priestly prayer in John seventeen seventeen, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. May I remind you that you have been given, the church has been given teaching shepherds. And our role is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. According to Ephesians four thirteen, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, referring to doctrinal unity, and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And later on, he says, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. And may I remind you that the Apostle Paul said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 10, that those who perish in their sins are those that did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. So don't tell me there's no such thing as truth. Beloved, I warn you, as your pastor, you need to avoid these type of people. In fact, we're told in 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 6, they enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning, and never able to come to the knowledge of what? Of the truth. You say, well... But pastor, this is surely just an isolated fringe group. No, not at all. It is growing rapidly. Not only that, data from a survey taken from the 9 taken after the 9/11 terrorist attacks, and released in November 2001 by the Barna Group, indicated that two thirds, two thirds of adults who attend conservative Protestant churches question whether absolute truth absolute moral truth even exists. Two-thirds. Certainly I would argue with their definition of conservative and Protestant be that as it may, these people are not steadfast if they'd even know Christ. I was interested to find what Charles Spurgeon had to say about this issue, and I found a number of quotes, but one that he made over a hundred years ago in England, which now is virtually apostate. In this particular sermon, here's what he had to say, and I quote, Know what you know, and knowing it, cling to it. Hold fast the form of sound. Do not be as some are, of doubtful mind, who know nothing and even dare to say that nothing can be known. To such the highest wisdom is to suspect the truth of everything they once knew and to hang in doubt as to whether there are any fundamentals at all. I should like an answer from them, from the broad church divines, To one short and plain question, what truth is so certain and important as to justify a man in sacrificing his life to maintain it? Is there any doctrine for which a wise man should yield his body to be burned? He goes on to say, I deplore the spread of this infidel spirit. It will eat as doth a canker. And my, was he ever right. He goes on to say, where is the strength of a church when its faith is held in such low esteem? Where is conscience? Where is love of truth? Where soon will be common honesty? In these days with some men in religious matters, black is white. And all things are whichever color may happen to be in your own eye. The color being nowhere but in your eye. Theology being only a set of opinions, a bundle of views and persuasions. And finally, he says, the Bible to these gentry is a nose wax, which everybody may shape just as he pleases. Don't you love the old English? Beloved, he says, beware of falling into this state of mind. For if you do so, I boldly assert that you are not a Christian at all. For the spirit which dwells in believers hates falsehood and clings firmly to the truth. Our great Lord and Master taught mankind certain great truths plainly and definitely, stamping them with His verily, verily. And as to the morrow of them, He did not hesitate to say, He that believeth shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. O oh, child of God, do you love the truth? Then be steadfast in it. Sit in it. If so, don't be a tumbleweed, be an oak. Allow your roots to grow deep into the soils of divine revelation. Proclaim the truth. Protect the truth. Meditate on the truth. Never stand in judgment of the truth. And above all, obey the truth. Beloved, be steadfast. Be resolute. Firm in your convictions. Let it motivate all that you do. My friends, every doctrine should have a sanctifying influence on your life. Every single doctrine. Certainly including the doctrine of the resurrection. The doctrines of the gospel. We need to teach them to our children. And warn them that there will inevitably come a time in their life when some fool who may know error better than they know truth will come and try to steal it away from them. Warn them. Prepare them. As I endeavor to prepare you. Be steadfast. Why? Because Christ has risen Because he lives, therefore, his word has been validated. Because the grave is empty, what he says is true. And because he lives, we too will rise again and we will stand before him in the presence of his glory someday to give an account. So be steadfast. Secondly, we are to be immovable. You see, we must be more than settled and firm in our convictions, letting them rule our lives. But my friends, we must also be unassailable when attacked by the cunning arguments of men, especially those who refute Christ, who deny the resurrection and scoff at the gospel. If I can put it this way, a soldier must not only be convinced of his mission and the rightness of his cause, but he also must be immovable. He must be unyielding. He must be unshakable. In the heat of battle. Immovable in the original language means not capable of being moved from its place. Real simple. And friends, you must remember we're at war. Many passages tell us that. Ephesians 6 tells us about a cosmic conflict that rages between God and the powers of darkness. There's always a war against the truth. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities. And think of all the ways Satan tries to redefine the truth in our lives. Think of just our culture, for example. Today, black is white. And white is black. Evil is good and good is evil. God has told us that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one until he returns. 1 John 5, 19. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? If you do, are you guarding yourself against the evil one? Are you guarding your families? Are you immovable in the truths of the Word of God as they apply to your life? I was reading just the other day that officials at Deerfield High School in Deerfield, Illinois, have ordered their 14 year old freshman class into a, quote, gay indoctrination seminar after having them sign a confidentiality agreement promising not to tell their parents. And the judges ruled in their favor. Think of all the ways Satan tries to redefine the truth. Tries to move us off of the truth. Sin, by the way, is missing the mark. And as you've heard me say before, we've got a bullseye. Of what God has called us to do. And many times in our life, we shoot for the bullseye and we miss. So what do we do? Readjust our aim? No, we move the bullseye. We keep moving it and 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 moving it. And now, when someone comes up and says, Thus saith the Lord, everybody thinks he's an idiot. There are charlatans in our Bible schools, charlatans in our seminaries, there are predators in the pulpits. Whole denominations have apostatized, and most so-called Christians can't even see it. The purpose-driven life comes out. One of the most profoundly apostate pieces of literature that I have ever read, and it becomes one of the greatest sellers in the history of the world. Absolutely inconceivable. The vast majority of Christian books, contemporary Christian music, you look at the lyrics, you look at the words, and they have utterly eviscerated the character of God. They have eviscerated the glorious truths of the gospel. And the modern methods and message of so many so-called churches today have moved off the Gibraltar of sound doctrine so that they can ebb and flow with the pop culture and enjoy The popularity of the masses. My friends, this is the opposite of being immovable. Jesus said, beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. We're warned in Jude to contend earnestly for the faith. In fact, Jude said in verse 18, in the last days, the last time, there shall be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. You say, ah... Pastor, this will never happen to us. It will never happen to me. Oh, my friends, be careful. Pride comes before a fall. You realize in the first century, by the end of the first century, century, according to Revelation chapters 2 and 3, that five out of the seven churches had already begun to defect from the faith, ultimately leading to utter apostasy. I look at many Christians. I look at their families, your families. And sometimes I weep as I pray. There is such a cavalier acceptance of the pop culture. There's no appetite for the Word of God in many places. There's no hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And so it's easy to constantly be moved. Constantly be moved. Constantly be moved. But when we come back to the bedrock of the gospel and the resurrection, we are told to be steadfast, to be immovable. I ask you, when temptation comes along, do you find yourself yielding ground? Do you find yourself turning tail and run? Do you find yourself giving in, abandoning the truth, abandoning your post as a good soldier and giving ground to the enemy? Do you believe the truth of Scripture? Do you believe the stern warnings that God has given us in His Word? Or are they simply literature? Oh, would that we all get serious about this admonition to be immovable. And by God's grace, dear friends, we can if we anchor our soul in the bedrock of the resurrection. We need to left the core of the Gospel be that which consumes our heart and our mind that that the reality of Christ, that he is alive is something that should constantly be in the forefront of our thinking. And to constantly be aware that someday I personally am going to stand in the presence of his glory and I will do so either seeing him as my judge or as my savior. And since most of you are believers, He's going to be our Savior. But my friends, we want to be able to say that I was steadfast. I was immovable. That you could say to yourself, I will not let any lie deceive me. No temptation will seduce me. No persecution will defeat me. I will be immovable. And whenever some profane purveyor of philosophy comes against you and attacks you for your love of Christ, for your hope in the resurrection, for your trust in the Word of God, may I encourage you to stand firm and to look them in the eye and to say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And as the lyrics of the great hymn went on to say, When darkness veils His lovely face, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. And finally, the Spirit of God speaks to us, saying not only should we be steadfast and immovable, but always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Now think about this as we close this morning. Every Christian is to be a workman. All of us are to be laboring daily to bring glory to God. And here we are called to abound in the work of the Lord. Abound has the idea of doing something in abundance, to overflow with, To exceed the minimal requirements. And it says always. In other words, not just on Sunday. But always abounding in the work of the Lord. Does this describe you? Do you know the work to which you have been called? In your family? In your church? Are you actively engaged in serving the Lord? Let me put it this way, dear friends. What are you doing for Jesus during the week? Do you know your spiritual gift? Are you using it? Or are you a spiritual sluggard? A slacker? Are you spiritually slothful in your service? Too busy to serve the Lord because after all, I have all these other priorities. Oh, it's hard to get by this time in these times. I don't have much time for the Lord. I'm sure He understands. Oh yes, He understands. (laughs) He knows your heart. You know, it's sad. Many Christians start out strong only to fizzle out. Does that describe you? Many Christians start out zealous for God. And then gradually they kind of become proud and they feel sufficient, feel confident in their spirituality. And they become content with past accomplishments and service. They will look at their checkbook and see all that they've given. And they will rehearse all of those times that they did certain things here and there for God. And gradually they will compromise their convictions. They will become increasingly enamored with the things of this world. They will become apathetic. They will eventually become lazy. There will be no measurable service that we can see in their life. And like the church of Ephesus described in Revelation 2, they can be described as those who left Their first love. In reality, the flames of zeal and love are gone, and only the burning embers of mere profession remain. Beloved, if this is you, in closing, may I say this? May I encourage you? Jesus has risen from the dead. We serve a risen Savior, we fight a battle that has already been won. The King is coming and He is going to rule in majesty and glory. He's going to put all of His enemies under His feet. That is the truth. Won't you rally to His cause? Won't you join in the battle? Won't you pick up the sword? Won't you be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain? The battle is going to be won and the Lord is going to reward. My friend, don't retreat. Don't be a wall. Don't cower in the heat of the battle. The victory is ours. The banner is about to be raised. And what a tragedy it would be to stand someday before the King of Kings in the presence of His glory at the resurrection morning and be branded a deserter So may I challenge each of you to examine your life in the light of these great truths. May we all rededicate our lives today that we would indeed be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our toil is not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for these glorious truths. May they find Lodging in the depths of our hearts, may the seeds of these truths germinate in such a way as to produce strong and deep roots in our character and conduct that we might bear much fruit for the glory of God. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to Pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olive tree resources.org.